morning. Take out your Bibles. Turn to Genesis chapter 9. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17. I wrote large chunks of this sermon in a stomach bug induced haze. So we'll see what happens. It had us in its grip for over a week. I think we're finally done. Uh, my apologies to anyone else that we may have infected. Uh, my fault. Our fault. Almost every week, Emma asked me what I'm preaching on. And so when I told her this week that I was preaching about Noah, for the fifth time, she replied, You're still preaching about Noah? So yes. Yes, I am. But we've got only one more week after this. It's just a deep, important story. Right? If four of the 11 chapters of the first part of the Bible are devoted to this one story, then we must give it our attention. This must be an important story. And we're going to see again today that these verses are just foundational, especially in light of some of the things that have been going on in our nation in these last couple of weeks. We're going to talk about some of those things. So we've seen the reason for the flood, the great wickedness and violence of man. We've seen God's promise of rescue from the flood for Noah and his family. Then we saw the flood itself and the great ruin that the rain wrought. All flesh died, all mankind, every living thing. It was total destruction, total loss of life. But then last week, we began to look at re-creation. So Genesis 1 is creation, Genesis 7 is decreation, Genesis 8 is recreation. Life, loss of life, new life. And that's what our passage this morning is about as well. This whole thing is about life. I've titled this sermon, The Rainbow, and sticking with our R's and with our theme, but it's an appropriate title because the rainbow is the symbol of the covenant that God is going to make with creation, and that covenant is a promise that God will never again destroy the world with a flood, which is a promise that he will preserve life. And prior to that promise, we're going to see God speak to Noah, his new Adam, at the beginning of his new creation. And just as he did for the first Adam, he pronounces blessing and he gives laws. And those laws all revolve around the preservation of life. So the first part of our passage is going to be, you preserve life. And the second part of our passage is going to be, I will preserve life. And that's because life is valuable. Life is Precious. And coming on the heels of the flood, after God has executed his justice, we may be tempted to question, well, does God value life? And our passage is going to assert quite clearly that he does. The motivation behind the flood was precisely God's care and concern to protect life. There was great evil. There was great violence. There has been great assault on life. And so God intervenes to save life. And now he directs his new creation, us, how we are to treat and value life. So we only have two points this week, and we get to the text, you'll see why the text demands that we only have two points. We're going to start first with the value of life, and then we're going to close by looking at the need of covenant, life and covenant. That's what this passage is about. Our culture, if you're paying attention to the news, increasingly devalues 
life. Sadly, even some self-professed Christians go along and also increasingly devalue life. We're called to be different. We're called to be holy, which means set apart. And one of the main ways that is going to express itself these days is by we, the church, celebrating, valuing, and protecting life. And in so doing, we are imaging our God who values life. So let's see what this text tells us about life and how we are to value it and how God values it for us. So I'll read it for you. You're going to need this open in front of you. I would advise you there's a pew Bible in front of you, Genesis chapter 9. I didn't check the page number. It's probably page 9-ish or something. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 17. What was it? 6. Page 6, if you want to follow along in the pew Bible. So Genesis chapter 9, we're just doing verses 1 through 17. I'll read it for you. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. And you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Bow with me if you would, and let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your word. Father, I'm thankful that it is living and active. I'm thankful that it is right and true and all that it asserts. Father, there are important things in this text. Father, there are provocative things in this text. Father, we need uh, you to speak and to work uh, through me, your imperfect mouthpiece. Father, I pray that your word would be clear. I pray that anything that I assert uh, would be rooted only in your word. Father, I pray that even in this text about the flood thousands of years ago, I pray that you would still show us Christ. Show us what this covenant Show us what your great love for life has to do with the gospel and with Jesus. May you be glorified uh, by the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, 
payment. Yeah, it's fifty five. Stop now. That's why you don't plan a sermon, uh, a point that you're going to add while you're preaching the text, uh, reading the text. Don't do that. Let's start with a little hermeneutics lesson. Hermeneutics just means interpretation. Right? Well, what does a text mean? Right? When I sit down with the text, how do I decide what are the points going to be? We preach expository sermons, which means the point of the sermon is supposed to be the point of the text. I don't just make things up and say, oh, this is what I think what it means. The main idea of the text is supposed to be the main idea of the sermon. Well, today we don't have to guess what the main idea is. Moses makes sure that we can't miss it. These are the things that you're looking for when you're reading and studying the Bible. You're not just reading, you're observing. You're asking questions of the text. You're looking for these various signals to help you discern what a passage is about. And I hope that you're starting to get tired of my repetition of the importance of looking for repetition. When an author repeats something, you know he wants you to pay attention to it. That's what makes the first part of our passage so easy to interpret. Moses has helped us. Not only has he repeated a word for us, he's basically repeated an entire phrase. Look at verse 1 and verse 7. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 1. Verse 7. Be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Right. So you can't miss these phrases. This is an extra fancy form of repetition called an inclusio. It sounds like a Harry Potter spell, like inclusio, right? That's what, it, that's what it sounds like. But you can hear the word inclusion in there. And this is a literary device where the beginning and end of a passage is bracketed with the same idea. Right? This repeated phrase serves as sort of bookends that bind together whatever is inside, and then these two repeated phrases tell you what the meat inside is about. Right, so some people, instead of a weird word inclusio, just call these sandwiches. Right, the gospel writer Mark uses a bunch of these. It's called a Markin sandwich. Sounds delicious. My, my favorite one is, is Mark chapter 11. You probably know the story, often called the cleansing of the temple. Jesus is upset about the vendors and the money changers turning the temple into a business. So the story is often told that Jesus comes in to clean things up and to purify and to restore the temple. Is that what he's doing? Not at all. And if people would just read the story in context, it would be obvious. Because the cleansing of the temple is sandwiched between another story. And remember, the outside story determines the meaning of the inside story. But what's the outside story? Well, before going into the temple, Jesus curses a fig tree. It's kind of strange. Then Jesus goes into the temple and does his thing, and then he comes out of the temple, and there again is the cursed fig tree, and it is withered and died. Why? Because Mark is signaling to us what Jesus was actually doing in the temple. He wasn't cleansing the temple. He was cursing the temple. He wasn't coming in and saying, hey, you know, let's clean things up a little bit. No, he was coming in and saying, this is done. This is cursed. Judgment is coming. No more temple. And that's exactly what happened in 70 AD when the Romans swept in and destroyed the temple. The outside tells you what the inside is about. And that's how we can know what the first part of Genesis 9 is about. Some of the stuff on the inside that we're going to see, it's a little bit strange. We're going to need to figure it out. But whatever it's about, it has to be about life. 
It has to be about the command to be fruitful and multiply, which is a command about life. So think back to what we talked about last week. Our title last week was Recreation. We saw that much of Genesis 8 just takes Genesis 1 and repeats a lot of the same ideas and themes. And the same thing is going on here at the beginning of Genesis 9. Turn back to Genesis 1 for a second, just five pages back. Let's look at Genesis 1. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 29, are very similar to the beginning of Genesis 9. Here's Genesis 1, verse 26 and 29. Here's the first Adam. Here's creation. It says, notice the parables. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Stop it. So notice we have God's blessing. We have God's command to be fruitful. We have something about the animals and man's relationship with them. We have God's provision of food. And then we have man created in the image of God. Both are in both, all of those are in both passages. All of that is related to life. God is the God of life. Acts 3.15 calls Jesus the author of life. God loves life. Life is good. God created life. He created it first for his own glory, but he also created it because life is intrinsically good and valuable. And so everything in this section revolves around this theme of life. I think there are three main aspects of this that we'll see in these first few verses. There's the multiplication of life, there's the sustenance of life, and there's the protection of life. Multiplication, sustenance, protection. Multiplication comes first, but it also comes last, so I want to save that for the end. Let's start with the second one, the sustenance of life, because it's of somewhat less importance. When I first wrote that previous paragraph, I wrote, let's start with the sustenance of life because it's the easiest. And then I started to study these verses and I decided it's not the easiest. It's probably the hardest. So I changed my mind. I'm not going to be able to answer every question that you have about verses two through four. It's not the main point of the text, so we cannot spend all of our time here. Plus, there are some things that I'm still working out and I'm not entirely sure about either. So let's see. Let's see what we can do. Look at verse two. We've had be fruitful and multiply. Here's the animal part. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. All right, so whatever these verses are about, they are about life, the goodness and preservation of life. And so notice, first off, compared to Genesis 1, the command to have dominion and to subdue the earth is not repeated here. Right? So it seems that there has been some sort of change in man's relationship with animals. It's not explicit, but the only other passage we have about man and his relationship with animals is Adam's naming of the animals in Genesis 2. 
and there things seem to be pretty docile and, and harmonious. Right? We know that the fall of, of man has affected not only man, but all of creation, and it seems that maybe it's affected the animals as well. So yes, this is a new creation, a new beginning, but not everything is the same. There is still sin that has to be dealt with. There is still violence in the world, and it's not all human violence. So sticking with our theme of the preservation of human life, God is promising that he will protect human life from animal life. Why we do not have dominion the way that we were supposed to have dominion. So we need God to protect us from dangerous animals far bigger and stronger than us. Do animals still attack? Yes, there's a whole show uh, about it. Um, when I was 27, a tiny little yappy dog came sprinting out of one of the little neighboring townhomes that we had down in Raleigh, North Carolina, and just latched right onto my calf, just for no reason. I, I don't know why. Uh, my friends all said it's because dogs can tell when you don't like them, so fair enough. Uh, but again, overall, animals keep their distance. Right? We tell our kids, right, it's, it's more scared of you than you are of it. God has taken steps to protect human life by putting the dread of man in them. They run away. Which, which means in part, one, one clear thing, I think, human life is more valuable than animal life. The world increasingly wants to equate the two. Some even want to elevate animal life over human life. All we do is spoil things and mess things up. Uh, that's not the position of the Bible. Yes, animal life is valuable. That's what we, we should treat it with, with care and with respect. We should not exploit. We should not abuse. But that does not mean that we should not use. Right? God gave us his creation, and he gave it to us to develop it and to use it to build civilization and culture. Right? And so we see that even further in verse 3. He's given us the animals. Again, similar to Genesis 1, but different. Now, God gives to mankind animals for food. Does that mean that mankind was, was vegetarian before this point? I preached at Grace Baptist a few years ago. I said something positive about meat. And a guy grabbed me after the service. Hey, you shouldn't eat meat. Because uh, in the garden, they didn't eat meat. I'm like, sorry, man. Like, I like meat. I'm going to keep eating meat. I didn't know what to say. But fine. That's great. You're good. Uh, being a vegetarian is good. That's fine. Do that. Uh, but don't say it's biblical or you have to do that. All right, so, again, I'm not entirely sure uh, what this is saying. The text seems to be saying that was the case. Calvin doesn't think that this was the case. He thinks we're reading into the text a bit. There's not anywhere definitively that says one way or another. Calvin points off that points out that people were offering animal sacrifices to God before this point, which involves killing animals. He points out that they were wearing clothes of animal hide first given to them by God. In all likelihood, then, he argues that they had been eating meat up until this point. I think I would land somewhere in the middle. The implication seems to be that in the garden, maybe they were vegetarians. God specifically gave them plants to eat. But in all likelihood, after the fall, after all these things that Calvin points out, mankind had probably started eating meat of their own accord. And now here we have God giving divine sanction uh, to that practice. God says, this is good. Um, continue doing this. Here is the animals given to you for food. All right, why not? Why all of a sudden animals? There's all kinds of fun speculation about this. It's 
It's fun to speculate, but I'm wary of speculating too much from the pulpit, right? I don't want the random, obscure things to get in the way of what is clear and definitive, which is the the gospel. So some people will say that with, you know, remember they had the super earlier long lives, and then they were somehow must have been biologically superior to the post-flood man, and so they only needed plants, but now God has shortened our lives, and so to sustain the life, we need the superior caloric content of meat. Um, based diets. You know, I don't know. It seems like a stretch. Some people propose that the addition and provision of animals is for a more theological purpose. God wanted it to be clear to us that our life would be sustained by the loss of life of another. So we have the constant reminder as we eat that something had to die for us to live, which could give us all kinds of gospel implications. I like that idea. Again, it's kind of hard to support, but it's it's an intriguing concept. Well, the point is, he gives us food for life. Eat meat and enjoy it. It is blessed by God here. One more fun thing to look at on these kind of secondary things. Look at verse 4. I don't know what to do with this. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And I've never some I've really never noticed or kind of camped on this verse before. Why no blood? Why no blood? Well, look at the verse. It tells us why. It makes a direct connection between life and blood. He says, don't eat flesh with its life, which is blood. So again, it's not necessarily about the blood itself. It's what the blood represents. And in the Bible, blood represents life. Back in Genesis 4, when Cain kills Abel, God says to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, right? Blood on the ground equals loss of life. Leviticus 17.11 says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. Right? So blood is symbolic of life. And since, as we said, this section is about God reaffirming that he values life and that we are to value life as well, we then he here commands that blood requires special treatment because life requires special treatment. And what's interesting, there's no other prohibition like this in any of the surrounding nations at that time. We have all other kinds of nations, all other kinds of laws. This isn't found anywhere else. This is utterly unique. Pagans regularly ate and drank blood for various mystical and religious reasons. Not the people of God. And what's interesting is the timing of this command. So notice that this command, like the Sabbath back in Genesis chapter 2, comes before the giving of the Mosaic law in the book of Exodus. So for example, the Mosaic law says don't eat pork. But we all happily eat pork today, right? Bacon is delicious. We love bacon. Why do we eat pork when the law of Moses says don't eat pork? Well, because we know that Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonial aspects of the law. In Mark 7, it says that Jesus declared all those foods clean. In Acts 10, Peter has a vision in which God brings down all these animals, and he says uh, he calls all of these foods clean that had previously been called unclean in the Mosaic law. So pigs are back on the menu. But this prohibition against eating the blood is before the Mosaic law. That's interesting. You know, I'm just starting to think about this, so I am not going to make a definitive statement one way or the other, but it's possible, and many people argue, that this still applies today. We're supposed to be different. 
We're supposed to be set apart. We're supposed to value life. Maybe one of the ways that we do that is by symbolically not eating life. That is the blood. I don't know. I'm not sure yet. I'm starting to hope that's the case because if it is, then I have solid biblical reason not to try the loot. So I'm going to study this in great detail and try to come up with this. Um, but, you know, I want to think on this some more. I want you to think on it and, and have some thoughts. This is a new idea uh, to me, right? Maybe this still applies. But again, we've got to move on. This is all about the sustenance of life. So we've got to move on from the sustenance of life to then the protection of life. Look at verses 5 and 6. I mean, don't forget the blood-life connection in verse 4. Verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. All right, so God is putting restraints in place to protect human life. Remember that God has just said, and he's about to say again, that he will never again wipe out the world with a flood. But he's also said back in 821 that nothing's changed. Remember, the the intention of man's heart is still evil from his youth. And we saw back in 611 that that evil expresses itself with great violence. So something has to be done to curb that violence. Something must be done to stem the spread of evil and to protect human life. And that's something, according to these verses, is capital punishment. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Again, this is, I know this is controversial, but it's just there. There's no way around it. It's precisely because God values human life that he will require life for life. What the text states. I wanted to address this last fall, but I was saving it until we get to this passage. As he tends to do, Pope Francis has been saying a number of provocative statements about this very issue. He has said that capital punishment is inhumane uh, of a measure, and it heavily wounds human dignity. But what's even more amazing than all of that is that in August, he actually changed official Catholic doctrine. He changed the catechism of the Catholic Church. He disagreed with and overruled Pope John II. That's not supposed to be able to happen. And a number of conservative Catholics are up in arms uh, about this. The First Vatican Council declares this. The Holy Spirit was promised to the successors of Peter, the popes, not so that they may make known new doctrine, but that by his assistance they might religiously guard and faithfully expound the deposit of faith given to them. But that's precisely what Francis is doing. He's changing doctrine. He's making new doctrine. He seems to do whatever he wants. And it's a particularly fascinating time in Rome to watch and see what's happening there. The new teaching uh, that he uh, supported says this. Uh, It says, The death penalty is inadmissible because it is an attack on the inviolability and dignity of the person. Holy irony. Look at our text. Look at the text. The whole point of the death penalty is because murder is such an awful attack on the inviolability and dignity of the person. 
Verse six directly connects the validity and listen, the goodness we could even say of the death penalty to the fact that man is made in the image of God. And it is this fact that we're made in the image of God and that fact alone that gives human life meaning and dignity and value. Our worth is found in our likeness. We are created in his image. Thus, an assault on the image of God is an assault on God himself. Disregard for the gift of life is disregard for the giver of life. Again, it's like I've explained before with the cross. Right? The enormity of the punishment conveys the enormity of the crime. The fact that Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, had to die on the cross for the forgiveness of sins shows just how terrible sin is. It's so bad that God had to become man and die for it. That's what your sin requires. It must then be pretty awful. It's the same idea with the death penalty. The enormity of the punishment conveys the enormity of the crime. The fact that life is required shows us just how bad the taking of life is. And the fact that life is required actually shows us just how much God values life. Calvin writes this, God so highly estimates our life that he will not suffer murder to go unavenged. And he makes this clear in so many words so that he may render the cruelty of those more detestable who lay violent hands upon their neighbors. And it is proof of God's love towards us that he undertakes the defense of our lives and declares that he will be the avenger of our death. God so values life that he will not allow the taker of life to go unpunished. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Again, I'm just reading what the Bible says. We're Christians believe God's word. Right? It's just that simple. Right? That's, that's what we're fundamentally saying. God's word is our uh, authority. Right? You cannot be a Christian and just deny God's clear word. And keep in mind that the Pope is denying God's clear word. It's just not a Christian. Right? It's just simple. You cannot deny the principle of capital punishment. It's there. But you absolutely can have questions and concerns about the specific practice of capital punishment. It's pretty obvious that capital punishment has been applied disproportionately and unfairly in our country. That should not be the case. We should stand against that. We should fight against that. That must be corrected. But again, abuse does not negate proper use. The practice needs to be fixed, but the principle is biblical, and the principle is good. That's hard to say, but I think it's correct. Yes, capital punishment is, is horrible, but that's because murder is so horrible. It's an assault on life, life that is created by God. Life that is precious and valuable. It is an assault on the image of God, and God's word says it must be punished. And that brings us to Albany back on the 22nd. If you haven't yet seen uh, the video of our state legislature cheering 
after the passage of the disdainfully titled Reproductive Health Care Act. You should go watch it because it's, it's, it's chilling. This new bill, which is the talk of the town, allows for late-term abortions after 24 weeks if the mother's health is at risk. And by health, they mean anything. Okay, not just physical health, but maybe mental health or even emotional health as well. The word is purposefully so vaguely defined that it can mean anything. Okay, so it is abortion on demand up until the point of birth for any reason. And you've been keeping up with the news, and then there's all the news in Virginia, and the governor of Virginia's in all kinds of trouble. Not because he said we should have the right to kill babies after they've come out of the womb, uh, but because he's a racist, which is a problem. But that's completely ignored the fact that he said, hey, infanticide, that's going to probably be okay, and that's probably going to be good. Like, this is where this is all leading. That's what this act was about that our state passed two weeks ago. And then they cheered. And Governor Cuomo had One World Trade Center lit up in pink to celebrate. Pink, the color that is most often related to the celebration of the birth of a baby girl, now directly connected to the celebration of the death of many baby girls and boys. And the great irony of him lighting up the One World Trade Center in celebration of this fact is that at the bottom of that Trade Center, at the 9-11 Memorial, included among the names of almost 9,000 people who lost their lives, are also the unborn babies who died in that attack as well. We know they're babies. Everyone knows they're babies. We know what they're doing. We know what they're celebrating. It's murder. And abortion is the taking of a human life. It is a murder, and it is being celebrated. It is shedding the blood of man, and verse 6 says, by man shall his blood be shed. Listen, there will be a reckoning. There will be judgment for the great sin of our nation. And we have two great sins, right? It's, it's slavery and racism, and it's abortion. There's a whole bunch of other sins. Those are the two big ones. Over 60 million lives slaughtered since 1970. That's ten times the number of the Holocaust. God will not stay silent forever. We've read a couple of times uh, Peter's reference to the flood in 2 Peter chapter 3 where he takes the flood as an illustration and he warns the church about the scoffers who will come and say, where's the promise of his coming? Well, where is he? Why, why is he silent? Why the delay? Where's God? Where's Jesus? Peter says, well, they overlook the fact of the flood. They overlook the great judgment of God. Verse 7, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And just the word says, judgment is coming. And this passage, Genesis 9, that is about the preciousness of, Life and how highly God values life should make us tremble because of what our nation is doing. I don't know what to do. I don't know what the answer is, but something's got to give. All right, the far left is being increasingly defined by things that are directly opposed to God. And again, in saying that, I'm not saying I'm any more of a fan of the far right. It's 
all of this. I want nothing to do with any of it. Um, but the insistence that for a woman to be equal with a man, she must have the right to kill another human being and to then increasingly define your political position by that idea is disturbingly absurd. It's murder. It's sin. And if sin is putting yourself in the place of God, if it is seizing for yourself that which belongs only to God, then the taking of unborn human life is the height of sin. Because God and God alone has the right to make and dispose of a person as he sees fit. Deuteronomy 32, 39 declares, uh, God says that it is he and he alone who kills and makes alive. To take human life unlawfully, and by that I do not mean only the law of the land, but the law of the Lord, to take a human life unlawfully is to usurp God's sovereignty over life and death. And God will not Allow that to go unpunished. God and God alone has absolute sovereignty over life. This is his job. Look at verse 5. Look at, look at how this is emphasized, his prerogative here. Notice this is emphasized for us emphatically. I will require. I will require. I will require a reckoning. Three times God says that he will require a reckoning. Man, those are chilling words in light of the last couple of weeks. More so if you look at the grammar of verse 5, because it's all in the singular. For one life, God will require a reckoning. We're talking over 60 million lives. God help us. God has put in place provisions for the protection of life. Our nation is doing everything that it can to remove every sort of provision for the protection of of life, and it is the great tragedy of our age. Now, I know this text isn't just about abortion. It feels particularly relevant with all the news that's going on in the last few days. Um, but I, mean, I guess I think if we really believed right, that they were actually slaughtering babies, uh, we'd probably care a little bit more. I'd probably care a little bit more, and we'd probably do something about it. I don't, I don't know what. I don't know what the answer is is, um, but, but something's got to give. It starts with this, it starts with talking about it, it starts with being clear about what is happening, and it starts with praying uh, for our nation. Uh, again, you, you know that I'm no fan of Trump, but he quoted Genesis 2 in his State of the Union address, and he talked about these babies being created in the image of God. Hey, praise God for that. Let's pray, let's pray that God will use that. He called out the practice of late-term abortion. Man, fantastic. Uh, good for him. Uh, we should also be clear, though, that there is fundamentally no difference between a late-term abortion and an immediate early-term abortion, abortion, because it's all life, and that's life is being taken, is being killed, and I think this text directly connects that. Life is valuable, and so all murder is Look at verse 5 one more time. There's one other thing that I think is important that the English somewhat obscures. In the last phrase there, verse 5, it says about this, from his fellow man. That word there, when in Hebrew, that word is just brother. And this is the first time we've seen this word since chapter 4. In the story of Cain and Abel, brother is repeated a number of times, emphasizing the horrible nature of Cain's crimes. It's not just murder, but it is murder of his brother. Well, now, here in the command prohibiting murder, the same word brother is used. 
Meaning, within a very real sense, that all homicide is fratricide. We, all of us, are one race in Adam. Then, any sin, then in a sense, any murder is the killing of a brother or sister. So in this text, that is a foundational family text, we see that murder is an assault on the family of man. We all rightly know that such an assault is awful. We know that murder is terrible. We should be thankful then for a God who promises to do something about it. God will protect life. He will not stay silent forever. He will act. So that's the sustenance of life. That's the protection of life. And then he also commands uh, the multiplication of life. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Life is good. So have lots of babies. They're, they're a gift. They're a blessing. They're, they're the future. In the Babylonian, remember there's a bunch of different accounts of the flood in many different cultures. In the Babylonian accounts of the flood, remember the gods destroyed the world because there were too many people and they were really loud and noisy and so they wanted to get rid of the people so they could have peace and quiet. But then they realized they needed people so they could have food to eat. Um, so they stopped the flood. Um, but... They didn't want too many people, and so they put in these specific, there was a goddess specifically um, to curse people with barrenness, and they put in all these things for population control because they wanted a few people to feed them, but they didn't want too many people. Too many people is bad for the world. That sounds pretty similar to what many people are saying today. Not God. There is no population control here. Uh, he says, be fruitful multiply. He blesses it. He encourages it. It's a command. He wants more. He wants life to spread. He is the God of life, and so he sustains it. He protects it, and he multiplies it. That's the value of life. Point number two. I know my terrible time balance is even worse today than usual, um, so we will be quick. Here. Here's why we only have two points. Here's why this text demands only two points. Because we've got another inclusio. Verse 9, which should really still be verse 8, and then verse 17. Notice how they're basically the same thing again. He says, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you. Verse 8 slash 9, 17. This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh. So everything in between. This is about the covenant. So our point is the need or the necessity of covenant. Covenant is required for life. All that we've just talked about for 40 minutes is impossible without this. The you preserve life is impossible without the I will preserve life first. And that's what this covenant is about. What is a covenant? And we've talked about it some recently, so I'll have to be brief. But a covenant is simply an arrangement. It is an agreement. At its most basic, covenant is about the relationship between creator and creature, between God and man. Covenant is how God always relates to man. He always and only relates through covenant. It sets and determines the conditions that regulate the relationship between God and people. So in it, God makes promises, he sets the terms and the conditions, and then he always gives a sign to confirm that covenant, which is the bow, the bow, it's the rainbow, it's the bow. But when we talk about covenants, we're usually talking about the covenant of grace or the covenant of works. These are redemptive 
covenants. Every other covenant is a covenant specifically related to God's dealings with his people. But this one's different. This is the one different covenant. This is the covenant of common grace, and thus it is related to God's dealings with all people. You see this in verse 10. Look at verse 10. The covenant is for every living creature. Look at verse 11. Here's the main idea of the covenant. He establishes it, and it is a promise that he will never again destroy all life by a flood. But that's actually not the entirety of the covenant. Look back at 822, because this is a key part of the covenant that I think we sometimes miss. Here's what he says. He says there, after talking about, again, not destroying the flood, that's the covenant, he says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So God, in this covenant, is promising stability. This is how God is going to preserve life. Not just by not sending another flood, but by sustaining that which sustains life. God is promising that he is going to uphold and maintain the necessary conditions for life on earth to flourish. That's why this is called the common grace covenant. It's for everyone. Special grace is that grace which God gives to his people to rescue them from their sin. Common grace is God's undeserved goodness and kindness to all people, whether they are his or not. For example, Matthew 5.45, Jesus says that God makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends his rain on the just and the unjust. That's common grace. And that's what this covenant is establishing, the conditions for the life that we've been talking about to continue. It is God that sustains everything. It is God that sustains us. The very air that we breathe, the very molecules that make up our physical bodies, all of it is sustained by him. And God is promising here to sustain the order that makes life possible because life is good. Because he values life and he wants it to flourish. And notice that there are no conditions in this covenant. I can make a good case, I think, that every other covenant has conditions. Even the covenant of grace has conditions. The good news is, is that God graciously meets those conditions for us. But the conditions are still there. Not this one. The Noahic covenant is the only one that we can truly say is unilateral and unconditional. God will do it. It's not dependent upon us in any way. But the fact that there are no conditions for the continuance of the covenant doesn't mean that there are no obligations or regulations for us. Notice our text, look at a big picture, zoom back. Notice that God promises in 8.21 and 22 never to send a flood again and sustain order. That's the heart of the covenant. And then he officially establishes that covenant in 9, 8 through 17. Well, talking about inclusios and sandwiches, that seems to imply that that which is in the middle, 9, 1 through 7, is part of this covenant as well. These are the obligations. These are what we are called to do in light of the covenant that God is establishing. And so notice how comprehensive then this covenant is. God in this covenant is ordering all of human life. Fruitful and multiplied. That's about the family. 
That's about the foundation of society. The provision of food covers the realm of work and of recreation, the enjoyment of God's good gifts. The protection of life with the regulation of capital punishment for murder is about government and the state and society. That's pretty much everything. Everything necessary for the preservation and propagation of human society, all of it is established here and founded upon the Noahic covenant. This thing is huge. It's so much more than God just saying, hey, I won't send a flood again. No, physical life is entirely dependent upon God's provision of this covenant. And that means then that spiritual life is as well. Because ultimately, why did God preserve life? Because in so doing, he established the order that was necessary for the promised seed to come. And sin has ruined everything. We are sinners. Therefore, we can do nothing about the sin problem. That's why we need not only the covenant of common grace, but the covenant of saving grace that was promised for us first back in Genesis 3, 15. God had said that he would send a seed, an offspring, a son, his son, to solve our sin problem. And that's what the gospel is about. And that gospel is made possible because of this covenant. The good news that Jesus Christ, God's son, has come and has won, but he has won in such an unexpected way. He won by dying. And listen, that fact should make this text all the more amazing. That's what makes the fact of God's insistence on the preservation of human life so unbelievable. Because even here in Genesis 9, God knows that ultimately the preservation of human life is going to require the destruction of Jesus' life. He has to die so that we can live. That's the ultimate result of all of this. And that should stun us. God is going to such lengths to preserve our lives at such cost to himself. The cost of his own son. And that's why the gospel, the good news, is so different than everything else. Just like the Noahic covenant in which God is promising to do something for us, the new covenant, the covenant of grace, saving grace, is God promising to do something for us as well, to save us from our sin. And that sin requires Death, the wages of sin is death. You can't get to Genesis 9 without believing that and seeing that. But in the gospel, the good news is that God provides the death payment for us in Jesus Christ. It's not about being good enough for God. We can't be. We're not. We're already sinners. We've already fallen short. His standard is perfection, and none of us can get there. But Christ came, and Christ has. Jesus Christ came to live in our place and to die in our place so that we could then live in his place with God forever. And we don't work our way to God. We rest our way to God by trusting in Christ, by believing in him, by turning away from sin and turning to him. That's what it means to repent and believe. God has done the work for us in Jesus Christ. So trust in him. And that's how we sang the song, Show Us Christ, for Genesis 9. That's how even the covenant 
with Noah is ultimately about Jesus Christ. Common grace serves the purpose of saving grace. Life is valuable. And look at the great lengths that God has gone to to preserve that life and to save that life. And he tells us then to go and do likewise. You preserve life. Here's how I'm going to preserve life. He is the God of life, and he values it, and it's precious, and it is good. This text is about life, because God is about life. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for its richness. We thank you for its depth and its great wisdom. Father, we haven't even begun uh, to get into um, all the things that are contained in just these few short verses in this foundational text to, to our entire lives. Father, I pray that uh, what is central and what is uh, most important would be clear, that you would put it before our eyes, put it before the eyes of our heart, that your spirit would do a work in us that my words are, are not able to do. Father, I pray that you would impress upon us the great beauty and the great value uh, of life. Father, I pray that we would see the horrible uh, nature of, of murder, of abortion, and of the taking of life, and, and all of these things. And, and Father, I pray that you would give us great resolve um, to, to seek to protect and preserve life in our spheres of influence. I pray that you would give us a voice of, of boldness, but also of wisdom and, and kindness and, and gentleness as we, as we speak and assert that which you have proclaimed so clearly in your word. Father, we pray that you would protect this church and protect uh, your church in general. Father, I pray that we would hold fast to the great truths that you have revealed to us in that word. I pray that we would remain faithful uh, to your word as we uh, face a, a culture surrounding us that is increasingly hostile to these basic beliefs. Uh, Father, we need uh, your help. And we need your assistance and your sustenance. Father, I pray that we would find our hope and our rest and our trust in you. Father, I thank you for this word that shows us how much you value life. We thank you for the great steps that you have taken to preserve that life and ultimately uh, the step of sending your son, uh, Jesus Christ, because there could be no preservation of life. There could be no salvation of life uh, without the loss of his life. Father, so we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news of Jesus. I pray that we would delight in him pray that we would hope in him. I pray that that good news and our identity in Christ would be uh, the thing that moves us and motivates us and affects and shapes and changes every single thing about us. Father, show us Christ. Help us love Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.